Well, good morning. Hope everybody got their caffeine this morning. All right. Well, thank you, worship team. That was awesome. It was. Uh, I think the bulletin says we're going to be in Philippians today, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But, you know, I had such a difficult time disconnecting verses 1 through 4 from 5 to 11. And so we're actually going to be covering 1 through 11. All right? And so we're going to be seeing some connections between those two passages and, uh, you know, we're going to be diving pretty deep today, so um, feel free, you know, at any time, if you need to come up for some air, come up for some air, take a deep breath, and then dive back down with us. We're going to be going deep today. So, um, <clears throat> you know, to us as Christians, the Word of God is more than just a book of good life principles. It's more than just a, a place where we go for some really nice, uh, cliche-sounding um, uh, sentences. But God's word to us is actually God revealing himself to us. And then, not just by commands or, or telling us, but he shows us who he is and what real life is all about. And so as we read today, as we look at the Bible, let's have that on our minds, okay? That God wants to show himself to us. And let's, let's go ahead and begin with some prayer. <clears throat> Father, would you awaken us this morning to see you? to really see you and to know what this life is all about. Help us, Father, to think less of ourselves and more of others. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's go ahead. We're going to read verses 5 through 11 again. If you missed it this morning, that was the scripture that we read from earlier, but we're going to go ahead and read it again. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, I want to give you right at the beginning what I'm aiming for in this message, okay? So if you're a note taker, uh, there's no outline today, it's just a blank piece. So if you've got a pencil or a pen and you're taking notes, this is what you're going to want to write down. The reason for Paul writing this to the Philippians, <clears throat> and for us today in, these pas in, these, in this passage, is to stun us into humility so that we would be one together and grow in our joy of the gospel. All right? So it's to stun us into humility so that we would be one together in our, and grow in our joy of the gospel. So I want to start in verse 5. Um, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here, we, we kind of, I kind of see verse 5 as kind of a hinge verse. So right off the bat, I just want to get something down. Paul's saying that have this mind in you, amongst yourselves, which is already yours in Christ. All right? Now, we haven't even talked about what that mind is yet, or that attitude yet is. But we need to understand that this is a gift of God. And so I'll give you a little sneak peek about what that is. That attitude, that mindset that we are to have is humility. In one word, it's humility. 
And Paul is saying, have it because it's already yours in Christ. And so we see that this is a gift of God. Humility is a gift of God. So that means you can't work for it. You can't earn humility. It's given to you from pure grace of God. Right? And so we don't, we don't work for humility. We work from humility. He's given us humility, and so we can work from humility. And so humility ought to be that mark in our lives, that everyday kind of a thing that, that when, when believers or unbelievers look at us, they should see humility coming from us in our words, coming from us in our actions. Okay? So have that mind in you, which is already yours in Christ. And so Paul says, have that mind, it's already yours, now we need to live it out. So we're going we're gonna to go into what are some ways that we are encouraged to live out humility, all right? But first, before we do that, we need to understand why. Humility isn't just, he's not saying be humble just because you should be humble. Why humility? Why is Paul encouraging us to, to live with that humble mindset? Well, let's take a look back in verse 1 and verse 2, Philippians 2, 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and so you could read that as since there is encouragement in Christ, and since there is comfort from love, and since there is participation in the Spirit, and since there is affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, could Paul be any more clear? He wants us to be one. Now, remember, my major idea is that Paul wants to stun us into humility so that we would be one together. All right, so that's the major idea. And so here we have Paul's, it's kind of like the pinnacle of Paul's desire in this passage, that the body at Philippi would be one. Would be, they would be unified for the sake of the gospel. And all through the writings of Paul in the New Testament, in one way or another, he is always encouraging the church to be one. We see it in Galatians. We see it in Ephesians. We see it in Corinthians. And you know what? It's the same here in Jacksonville at Fellowship. God longs for us to be one to be unified as a body. And Paul knows the importance of unity, and he also knows the dangers of disunity. If Christians are in disunity, if there's grumbling, if there's complaining, if there's unforgiveness, if there's pride, man, who would want to be part of a family like that? When people look from the outside and they see a bunch of family members yelling and bickering at one another, who would want to be a part of family? It's very unattractive, is it not? To say the least. And a church like that is a spiritually weak church. The enemy can come in and just cause chaos in a church like that. And so Paul is extremely concerned with their progress in the faith and their oneness as a body. Let's go back to uh, Philippians chapter 1. Look at verses 23 and 25 really quick. I'm hard-pressed between the two, Paul says. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And so that is what Paul is literally giving up his life for. You see, you know, Graham mentioned that, that the book of Philippians, it's a letter, it was written by Paul 
from jail. And it wasn't like he just didn't pay his parking tickets. He could have avoided this. He didn't have to go to jail. He didn't have to keep preaching when people told him to shut up. He didn't have to say, Jesus is Lord. Do you know how offensive that was to say Jesus is Lord in that day, in that place? It was illegal. And so he basically chose jail because he chose the gospel. He chose to proclaim it. And so he didn't have to be there. He could have given up on it, but he didn't because he was stunned by what Christ had done for him. Nothing was going to stop him. Nothing, not even prison, not even death was going to stop him. And so Paul knows that unity is so important for the sake of the gospel that he was willing to give up his life for it. And so we need to realize, just as the Philippians needed to realize, that where humility is lacking, our unity as a body is at stake. Where humility is lacking, our unity as a body is at stake. And so the key to unity is humility. The key to unity is humility. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing... That's big. Nothing? Not even a little bit? No. Do nothing from selfish ambition, or some, some translations say rivalry, or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Verse 5, have this mind in your, among, among yourselves. Have that mind. Have this do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry or conceit mind. Have this count others more significant than yourselves mind. Have this look to the interests of others mind. Have that mind in you. Now, Paul lays out five uh, ways of being humble or, or fleshing out this humility because, remember, he says have this mind in you. He doesn't want it just to be internal, though. You know, when we talk about our mind or an attitude, it's, it's internal. But Paul is saying, no, 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 I want you to have this mind, and this is how you flesh it out. This is what it should look like. So he gives us five ways in these two, in these two verses, right? They're kind of hard to separate. But I think when he says do nothing from rivalry or selfish ambition, I think that's appropriate that that's first. Because what, when humility says, I want you to go first, selfish ambition or rivalry says, no, 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 no. I'm more important than you. I'm going to put my accomplishments ahead of your accomplishments, what I, want, what I desire ahead of what you desire. And you know, selfishness, man, it's really at the root of all sin, right? I mean, you thought the love of money was the root of all sin. But selfishness, think about it. From the time of Adam and Eve, and even before that, think about Satan when he was cast from heaven, from God's presence, Man, it was pride, it was selfishness saying, I'm more important than you. And so he put uh, his desires first. Adam put his desires first. You think Adam was thinking about Eve when he took the fruit? Yeah, at, yes, I know Eve took the fruit first. But he was standing right there. He could have said something. He put his desire, and they put their desires ahead of God and said, what I want, not what you want. And look at, look at it, it says, do nothing from conceit. Now, I'm not really a King James type of person, but I love what the King James says. It calls it vainglory. 
Do nothing from vain glory. Empty glory. You see where selfish ambition is all about what you can accomplish? Conceit is all about getting the praise and the glory and the attention of others. And we are to do nothing from conceit or vain glory. You know, the only unity that a conceited person is concerned with is, his, is unity around himself, right? They want people to look at them and to, and to have the attention. And everything needs to be about them, and they're very quick to give their opinion on how something should be, right? And, of course, they get really personal and defensive whenever there's pushback against that because they want all the glory. They, they, they want people to look at them and praise them. And Paul says, no, do nothing from vain glory. Do nothing from conceit. You know, this makes me think of a time uh, when Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem, right before uh, the triumphal entry, okay? So we're talking just a few days before his crucifixion. Um, The disciples were going with them, and James and John come to Jesus, and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I'm like, wow, that is a really audacious request, right? I mean, what is Jesus, like the magic genie in a lamp? Like, oh, you get three wishes. What, what would you like? You know, and of course you ask for a million wishes, right? You can't do that. All right? But listen, he goes to them, and instead of like slapping them upside the head and saying, what do you, who do you think I am? Or, or, or rebuking them, he says humbly, what do you want? And they say, grant us, Lord, to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Because they thought, now they, they had a good picture of who Jesus was, but they didn't have the whole picture of who Jesus was. They, they heard, oh, he's going to be setting up his kingdom. And if he's the king, and I get to sit at his right and maybe at his left, then I get to be second in command. And everybody will have to listen to me, and everyone will have to look at me. You see the, you see the conceit there, right? Well, Jesus, uh, or right after that, actually, um, all the other ten disciples, it says, became indignant at James and John. Now, you already know what indignant means, but I had to look it up, all right? So indignant, I already knew it meant mad or angry or whatever, but I I didn't realize that this was really anger that has like some, some jealousy in it. There was anger that was like, that's unfair. And so the, you know, the rest of the disciples were like, I wanted to ask that question. I can't believe you, right? They just didn't have the guts to do it. And again, Jesus, because he's so humble, he calls his disciples together and he slaps them upside the head and says, you guys are so conceited, right? No, he doesn't do that. He humbly brings them and he says this. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, in other words, Israel, an occupied nation, The Roman rulers, they came in and they are an occupying power and they are exercising their authority with force and they can do whatever they want to whomever, whenever they want. They they have the power and and they're demanding and commanding others because they have the force. And Jesus says, you see this, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first shall be slave, his words, not mine, slave of all. Wow. Totally turning things upside down, right? What's up is down in God's kingdom. And so you see, instead of working out of selfish ambition or rivalry and conceit, 
We are in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. Now, it says to count others more significant. I think the King James says to regard others. That doesn't mean we pretend that they are more significant so that we can have really in the back of our minds that we're more significant than they are. It doesn't say pretend. It says to think about how in the world is this person more significant than me? Because I am not so high and mighty that I can't come and serve them. I am to see others regardless of age, regardless of status, regardless of skin tone, regardless of bank account, regardless of ability as worthy of my service to them. That's how I'm to count others more significant. There's there's no room for me saying, well, I, I can't stoop down that far to do that. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, there's something really uh, really interesting about this verse. The word interest, if you're reading that in your Bible, it's not really there. Well, I guess, I mean, it's really there if you're reading it. But what I mean is in the original, it's not there. It's like this really broad, generalized term. It doesn't really say it's just blank. So we we could play fill in the blank. So this is how you could read the verse. Let each of you look not only to his own, but also to others. That's how it reads. So let each of you look not only to his own family, but also to the family of others. Let each of you look not only to your own finances, but to the finances of others. Let each of you look not only to your own health, Reputation, education, but also to others' health and reputation and education. You see, I love this, and I hate it all at the same time. Maybe it's because I'm, you know, it's the legalist in me. Because I want something really black and white, like do this, don't do that. But here, Paul just says, let each of you look to others. Not just to your own, but to others. And I'm like... I can't just say, oh, I looked, at, I looked into somebody's, you know, whatever. Check, ch- cross it off my list. I'm done for the day. But he's saying, no, 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 no. You look to your own very easily, right? When you're hungry, what do you do? Yeah, you eat, right? So you're looking out for your own interests. It's, it, it, it's second nature to you, first nature. <laughs> but we are to be on the lookout in service of others, How can I serve you? How can I help you? How can I come alongside? And we're to be looking for it. Not just, well, oh, he called me, he needs some help, okay, I'll find some time. No, 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 we're supposed to be like this, on the lookout. Humility says, be on the lookout for others. So we are to have this mind in us. Have this mind way of life, this humble, constantly having others on your mind and reaching out to them despite the sacrifice of time, effort, and money it may cost. And so you can see how humility is really the support or the the key to unity. You see how that works? When, When we are constantly 
uh, as a body, looking out for others' needs and not counting others more, or, or not counting ourselves more significant than others. You see how that lifts up unity? Now, like I said, uh, verse 5 is kind of like a hinge verse in this passage. Now, how does Paul, okay, how does he empower people to live this way? What could he say that would equip us or challenge us or push us to live in this way? I mean, this this is a high thing to do, to constantly look out for others' interests. So in verses 3 and 4, he gives us these practical ways of fleshing out humility. In verses 1 and 2, he talks about why humility, so that we would be one. And remember, uh, my major idea here is that Paul wants us to be stunned by humility. And so I say the word stunned because I don't think humility is something you can necessarily choose any more than you can choose to be hungry. Now, if I gave you a plate, a full plate of like your favorite food, okay, so like James Stewart's ribs, never tasted anything like that in my life. So delicious. And I gave you a full, or unless you're an anomaly in Texas and you want some leafy greens, right? Okay, so I gave you whatever, whatever it is, I put it in front of you and you ate until you could not eat anymore and every bite was so delicious. And you emptied your plate and I put another plate in front of you. What would you say? I can't. I'm not hungry. I can't just say, well, be hungry. Right? And it's the same way with humility. You can't just say, be humble. So what does Paul do? So verses 6 through 11, he's going to not just tell us anymore what it's like to be humble. Man, he's going to show us. He's going to show us Jesus, the most humble person who's ever walked the face of the earth. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So, for Jesus, being God meant that he could give up his God-like qualities. Okay? Now, this passage is actually a pretty controversial passage, at least historically, because there are some words in here that Paul uses that are so rare. In fact, some of them are not found anywhere in the New Testament, and some words are not even found more than a couple times outside of of the Bible in in the Greek, Koine Greek, you know, back in the day. And so it's, you know, there's a lot of uh, difference in in, uh, thinking outside of the orthodox way of viewing who Jesus is. All right? And so... But I don't want you to miss this. He didn't use his godness, his godlike qualities as a way of taking advantage of others. He counted others more significant than himself. He's God. But he did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of and say, well, I, I, I'm God. I get to do whatever I want to do. That's part of being God. He said, no, 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 I'm going to give that up so that I can count others more significant. I'm on the lookout for other people's interests and their needs. He's God. He didn't have to do that. Think about this. This is who God is. God loves to just give himself away. That's what brings him joy, is to give himself away for the sake of others. (laughs) Aren't we to be like him? Do you think Jesus did this out of obligation? Yes, he was obedient to his father. 
But do you think he did this like, okay, Dad, right? No, it brought such joy that he would give up those divine qualities to serve us. Do you know who the happiest person in the world is? Anybody? It's God. It's your question. It's God because he's the most generous person in the world. You see, the world, we have it all wrong. We think the more that we can get from others makes us happier or makes us more important. No, 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 no. Look at what God did. He gave up his equality with God. And he came down and he took the form of a servant. It says he made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself. Now, this is another kind of a tricky thing. So what are we talking about here? Did Jesus stop being God when he emptied himself? No, he didn't. You can't empty yourself of your very nature. Okay? So what does it mean? It means he's doing the exact opposite of vainglory or conceit. The exact opposite. He gave up his reputation as supreme ruler of the world. He didn't need praise and glory and honor. He gave it all up. He was completely satisfied in being God. And so he emptied it all so that he could count others more significant. So that he could look out for the interests of others. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He became man, but he never ceased to be God. And so we have this huge teaching. Okay? This, is a, this is one of those teachings that separates Christianity from all the other religions in the world. Okay? That we have Jesus, and we claim that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Not 50-50, not 0 and 100, but 100 and 100. Okay? My mind is exploding. I don't understand how that can be. But the Bible teaches it, and it's really clear that Jesus was in the form of God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be held onto. So he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. So, how can a holy God be human? I think when we come across passages that are seemingly contradictory or very hard to understand, we need to understand that we need to see that Scripture in light of the rest of Scripture. Right? We don't just pull something out and say, oh, I think it means this. Right? We look elsewhere so that it would speak to that passage. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to turn really quick to Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. It says... For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Here it is. By sending His own Son in the likeness. Okay, here's that, there's that word, likeness. Verse 7 in Philippians, being born in the likeness of men. Romans 8.3 says, By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So He was flesh, but not sinful flesh. Right? He was human, but he wasn't sinful human. Okay, that's really important. A lot hangs on that as far as our salvation goes. A lot hangs on that. And so he was fully man so that 
If we continue reading in, in Romans 8, God condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Jesus' flesh. How could he do that? Because he was a man. Jesus was a man. And so God could take the punishment for our sin and condemn it in a man. Jesus. And so here we see that Jesus was sent as a man, not a sinful man, so that he could be punished because he was actually a man. Now, I don't... Okay, so don't, let's come up for a breath of fresh air. Whew, all right, take a deep breath. Let's go back down. You ready? I don't want you to drown trying to understand all this, but I do want you to see that it was in love and joy that God gave himself away. And then we begin to see this great condescension of Christ. That God became a man, and not just a man, he became a servant. A servant. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, God could have humbled himself to be a king on the earth. That would have been huge, too. You know that, right? Like he could have stopped, you know, he could have stopped grasping his divine qualities and emptied himself so much that he was king and ruler of the whole earth. He could have done that. But he didn't. He came, became not just a man like one of us, but even lower than us, he became a servant to us. And not only that, he became the lowest type of servant because he was completely obedient to his master. So obedient, in fact, that it led him to his death. I mean, we have no concept of this. We don't ever obey to our death. We always want to give in to temptation, don't we? And so here we see God giving Himself away so that He could be not just like us, but below us, a servant, and the lowest form of servant who is completely obedient to His death. But you know what? We can't even stop there. Because it says he died on a cross, the most shameful form of death around. You know, Jesus didn't die of natural causes. People weren't at his funeral saying, man, he was such a great guy. He helped a lot of people. Really liked him. Minutes before his death, People were spitting on him and mocking him and insulting him and making bets to how long he was going to live. You talk about the most shameful, lowest way to die. Do you see this? Do you see how God was still God and yet He became like us but lower than us? He became so obedient as a servant that it led Him to His death and the most shameful kind of death there is. Do you see that? And do you see that He did that in love and in joy for you and for me? <laughs> Why? Why did Paul do that? Yes, he did it for love and for joy, but listen. He did that so that you and I would do nothing from selfish ambition or empty vainglory. That we would, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. He did that so that we would look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. That's why Jesus did it. But there was another reason. 
why he did it. Let's look at verse 9. Therefore, because of all that Jesus did, because of everything that we just read about, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Paul paints this super huge picture of Jesus. This all-encompassing type of thing. You know, a lot of people say that this was like a hymn that was written before Paul wrote it. We don't really know. I don't really tend to agree with that. But it's really beautiful, is it not? But Paul didn't write this just because he thought this, was, this would be a really great ending to this. Right? This whole idea of Jesus being God and then being a servant and then dying a shameful death. This, this would be a really good ending to it. That's not, what he, that's not why he wrote it. You see, Paul know, knew that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. He is literally now super exalted by God. That word highly exalted is one word in the Greek. It's like super exalted. To the high, it's not just a promotion. It's not just even a really good promotion. He has been taken now to the highest place, most important, most powerful place. And he sits there. Nothing left to be done. Jesus is highly exalted. And now he has been given the name that is above every name. And the name is not Jesus. The name is Lord and Christ and God. That's the name that he has. And that is the name that one day all of us, not just in here, but all around the world, and not just those who are living today, but those who have gone before us, and all heavenly beings and all demonic beings will look to that one and they will say, He is Lord. He is God. Some will say it willingly, and I will jump up and down after I get off my knees, and I will say, He is Lord, He is God. And others will say it regretfully because they have denied what Jesus has done. And I don't mean deny like that didn't happen. I mean deny like, I hate you. That's the reality. That sin blinds us in such a way that though we are confronted with the truth and love and joy of God, that we could say, it's not that important to me. You know, when the disciples were with Jesus and they were going in you know, before the triumphal entry and Jesus says, you know, it shall not be so among you, for whoever wants to be first should be last. You know what he says right after that? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so before, as we close, before, before we can leave this place and we can put into practice what it means to be humble, being stunned by what Jesus has done, 
We need to realize that Jesus came to serve us. Who are we to push away what Jesus is serving? Who are we to say, nah, 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 I'll just go do it, Jesus. Don't serve me anything. I'm just going to go do it and, and try to follow your ways. No. For even the Son of Man came to serve you something. He, gave to give, he came to give his life away for you. We ought to run and bow at his feet and say, give it to me, God. Please give it to me, Jesus. Because he came to serve us salvation. What you and I need more than life, more than breath, is forgiveness of our sin. And oneness with him. And he's here to serve it. Please don't push that away. Please don't say, no, no, no. Who, who, who am I that you would serve me? No, he came to serve you. Receive it. Let's pray.